once again. This is Nuance. Thank you all for joining us this week. I'm Mike Scala, joined as always by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip hop MC and the chair of BLM Tokyo. And yes, my camera is still bugging out. I guess that's something we got to deal with, but we are here and as we say, the show goes on. So what's going on, Jay? Um, I'm doing okay. Um, looking a little better than you are, it looks like. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm doing, doing all right. Maybe it's a curse, as we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute. But I wanted to introduce our special guest. We are joined by the new Dayton Towers Board President, Thomas Kerr. Also, of course, my cartoonist with The Wave. How are you, Thomas? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us. And you know, I've been such a big fan of your artwork for such a long time, but I'm always impressed how you're able to put that together on seemingly such short notice. I mean, some of those cartoons seem very intricate, and well thought out. And I think even speaking to you once, you told me that it doesn't really take you a whole lot of time to do that, right? Oh, well, uh, since I started at age roughly 23 years of age, I started doing it commercially. I've done very literally tens of thousands of drawings. So uh, after a while, you kind of get quick at doing it. You get to know your, your time frame and uh, the subject matters have kind of a written in, I guess you'd say, uh, cachet of visual symbols that I, I can just tap on. Like if you say Democrat donkey, if you say Republican elephant, if you say America, perhaps Uncle Sam, but also perhaps the Statue of Liberty, then from that point forward, it's that's the hard part is coming up with a worthy idea and then following that, cobbling it and fashioning it into some sort of um, sort of touchstone that people can look at and immediately glean what the thesis of the story is. So, uh, and like I said, I've got a bit of mileage under my you know, experience, so I'm, I'm able to draw pretty quickly. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. I always enjoy the writing and reading and working with various authors. I've, I've worked for from everyone from Woodward and Bernstein to Kurt Vonnegut to uh, Mark Healy at The Wave. Excellent. And speaking of donkeys for Democrats, we know that that came from Andrew Jackson, who was the first Democratic president. And last week, we talked about this book that I picked up called Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America by Jared Cohen. And we talked about the oddity that of the eight people to die in office, in the office of the US president, seven of them were elected in a year ending in zero. And in fact, between 1840 and 1960, every 20 years, a president who was elected in those years died. And I thought that was strange. And I wondered if the book would talk about that at all. And lo and behold, even though I think Jay said it would not be in the book, it was on page two. As a matter of fact of the book, they talk about this curse, this alleged curse that was put on Andrew Jackson, but ultimately put on really the US in the office of the presidency by a Native American chief. Um, William Henry Harrison, of course, was the first in 1840, but he says every 20 years thereafter, the great chief chosen by the U.S. will die. And this is folklore. You know, I don't know if he actually said this at the time, but it became a story. And certainly it's a very eerie thing that between those years, between 1840 and 1960, every 20 years, like clockwork, a president died in office. Yeah, should not mess with curses. You never know. Um, yeah, I've seen what was that with um, the pyramids um, 
with the archaeologist uh, Carter and um, people opening up uh, Tutankhamun's tomb and all the stuff that befell them because of supposed curses and <laughs> just got to be careful, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's out of the realm of my specialty. I I know that curses are supposedly uh, if you inflict them, that it takes something from the person who inflicts them as well as the person who is inflicted with it. But mm. um, you know, and also there are wards against it. I I wouldn't imagine that uh, if I were going into a presidency in a zero year, I might get a couple of charms to ward off those <laughs> curses. Yeah, you can't. You know, it can't hurt. You know. So now, Thomas, you're from Canada originally, right? Was yes. there anything like that in Canada? A curse of the prime ministers or anything of that sort? Uh, their their curse was pretty much on the people of Canada, um, but in terms of like mortality rates, not so much. Uh, you know, it's relatively similar to the United States, although it more closely resembles the UK's uh, parliamentary procedures. So you can have votes of non-confidence. Um, I always thought that it would be something that would be useful here when you had a, a president, rather than going through the trouble of impeaching, you would just simply have a vote of non-confidence and then you would have another election. Expensive and problematic, of course, but you, people get the elected official they want. You know, that seems so polite, right? That's like typical Canadian in the U.S. We're going to impeach you and convict you, put you on trial in Canada. It's like, we're just not too confident in you anymore. So, you know. So exactly. That's the yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we would, especially with with um, the landscape right now, I think that would be sorely abused. <laughs> It'd be uh, the votes yeah. of non-confidence. <laughs> totally. I think it would be. As, as a matter of fact, it seems like after the honeymoon is over for every president. Right. Yeah, every elected official, for that matter. Right. Pretty much. Yeah, that, that would be. I, I could see. In our very confrontational and uh, aggressive politic, that could be a very problematic at all levels. Yeah, right. totally. Well, it's uh, from my my perspective. I've had an opportunity to even illustrate work by some presidents. Uh, I think Bill Clinton was probably the best regarded one, and uh, but. And I honestly have never illustrated anything by Mr. Trump. Um, not a very writerly kind of fellow. Mm. But, uh, you know, some of the other presidents who have written, I've actually had like Al Gore, I've illustrated for, he's vice president, but, you know, he was a presidential contender. And, uh, you know, my sense is that these, these men are, you know, no matter how popular they get, there's a point where everything kind of turns against them. And, yeah. And it, it happened to Bill. It, it certainly happened to, uh, well, I think it happened to Trump pretty, pretty quickly. But I think it's also happening to Mr. Biden right now. President Biden, pardon. Yeah, that, that does tend to happen. Um, and I think every, like you said, every, everyone that gets in the office at some point is going to experience some of that. Because when you're getting elected and you're making the, the promises and the campaigns, um, you know, people get inspired or get excited about that, but they don't understand that it's not that easy to make happen, right? There's a lot of procedures, there's a lot of voting, there's a lot of stuff that has to go into it for something to, to change. And people don't, if they don't get it right away, then they, they feel like they've got, you know, sour grapes, they were sold to lemon, and, you know, then you get some of that um, negative. So I'll build up some artwork here. Thomas that I just found on Facebook 
what well, are you depicting here? This is looks like a, that. That a, was a, that's a very literally cybersecurity. It's it's a phone getting broken into by some uh, you know ill-intentioned cyber criminal, and and it's right on your phone. Of course, it's it's on our phone now, but uh, yeah, that's that's what that's about. Uh, it's like a cybersecurity thing. There's a lot of ones and zeros down there. Okay. Uh, this one's about molly coddling criminals. Uh, you know, the idea that they're, and this one is about the fires in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah. See the boomerang. Koala. Yeah, that whole, that whole story got overshadowed really quick with uh, COVID. I'll tell you, if nothing, if it's in Australia, nobody pays attention. You know, it's, and the thing is, uh, they're, they're actually very avid readers um, down under. So it's kind of nice. I got some nice letters from from those folks. Mm. <laughs> now that where did those like that that uh, Australian fire one? Where did that run? That they would oh that was syndicated uh, through INX Group. Um, so uh, it, it could have run into the it could have gone to the Australian. It could have gone to uh, Globe and Mail. You know, it's and also online publications these days. And, and my idea was just to show this burning boomerang. I mean, it's a symbol of Australia. Sure. But yes, uh, this this one is very This is about you have people gun violence and violence in Rockaway. Okay. And it, you can see they're under the uh, elevated tracks. Sure. And uh, this this I did very early on. I think I did this one for Howie Howie's uh, Schwartz. Uh, Schwach. Yeah, Schwach. That's it. Howie Schwach. Uh, he. Uh, asked for something about like uh, there was an uptick in gang violence and and now it's become epidemic i'm afraid um with you know just the other day i think a, a group of kids uh, shooting on a bus or bus got shot with a kid in it can't remember the details of it but i know there was a shooting yeah. and it was generally like a once a year thing but now it seems to be coming up about once a month uh, but here we see like three hooded figures with and their faces are out of the hoodies are actually handguns. Right. And then we're, we're seeing that unfortunately um, in national news this past, this past week, there's been, I think two mass shootings. Um, yes. Yes. Almost three. Yeah. Almost three. Uh, were two of them in California or I know one was in California. They were all in California. Yeah. The two. Yeah. yeah. And, and, Kind of, I th think it's a little strange, but two of the shooters were, uh, one was in his, his late 60s and the other was in his 70s, which is kind of odd. Yeah, hard to figure that out. Uh, a lot of people just jumped on like yakking about it right away, but it, we really don't know what went on there other than it was definitely a mass shooting event. Definitely right. kind of horrible. Um, I, I, I must say it's a perennial in my in my uh, work, I quite often end up drawing, you know, gun images. You know, that's almost, almost. Uh, I would call it like you know a great percentage of my work, but it must be at one out of every fifty drawings. So, with with your experience in in, in drawing these artworks for for media, um, would you say that there's been a definite? You could see a definite change in what kind of uh, news stories that you're illustrating for or like there's there's more of something than there used to be or less of something than there used to be oh sure there's been a lot of differences um when i started out and this is probably around 87 
86 in that neighborhood. Um, that was sort of like the start for me. Uh, I think that the media was a little bit more diligent. Um, they were a lot more, I, I think they, they put a lot more sweat equity, mainly because uh, they weren't jumping. They had to move quickly, but they weren't after the latest click. You know, they, they were, the web wasn't really a thing when I started. It was uh, like a very peripheral thing. Um, people spoke about it, but they didn't really think it had an impact at that point. Now, uh, the idea of a viral posting, a viral meme, the idea of, you know, the tweet that, you know, found its way around the world uh, entices people to get that first click. And because of that, it pushes, it narrows the amount of time that they have to fact check and to, you know, go through due diligence to make sure they're not making a colossal error. And they have made colossal errors and uh, due to this. And there are many people, and, and you kind of hinted at it, who exploit these kind of things. You know, they're waiting for this kind of thing to jump on a bandwagon one way or the other. Um, also, because of the media kind of shifting as it has, there's a blurring between, and, and you had mentioned this specifically, what satire and, and non-satire is. Um, right. So let's get into that, Jay, because I think you originally sent me the story about right. this organization, but really it's not a real organization, right? But it's a satire or a parody of some sort posing as a legitimate organization for trans rights. But they were saying that the Aretha Franklin song, Natural Woman, should be pulled from streaming because it allegedly was transphobic, right? Right. And that was, um, you know, that tweet went up and it just kind of caught wildfire. It went, it went viral um, with some um, immediately latching on to this is the latest in, you know, PC culture or, or whatever it is. Um, and... Ultimately, the organization and the Twitter account didn't have a particularly large amount of following followers on this account. I think it was like 1,600 followers. Um, and, you know, they post these parody or joke posts or tweets um, that they put out. And media, some media uh, picked it up and ran with it as this was a legitimate organization that was calling for the 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 banning of Aretha Franklin's song. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the danger here is that they weren't, they didn't go in and verify. Um, and even that that account, that's a, it's a parody account, so we don't know, you know, we can trust or whatever what they, they say, but they even posted that, on, the person said only uh, a handful, maybe one or two organizations even contacted them to verify this, this position in this story. Um, other organizations went ahead and just posted it straight away. Yeah, I, I think that, again, you, you were seeing people sort of, uh, you know, they're making hay out of something because it suits their political agenda. So right. they're automatically, and I think that it's, it's a problem in contemporary thinking to run everything through a political filter before you come out with an opinion on it. Uh, you know, the, if, if it was satire, it wasn't like particularly good satire. I mean, satire has a range of kind of between and, and having been satirical myself almost my whole career. It, it's there's a range, right? There's everything from 
Tristram Sandy to this, to a meme, you know, and, you know, people could be intending something, you know, I have friends who make all sorts of stuff up and, you know, sometimes it's inappropriate or sometimes it's quite funny, but, you know, if you're not sort of in the trenches having to sort of dole this out every day, you, you do have to be cognizant of what it is that you're saying because right. you don't know what, what will happen. You just don't know. Because if you get the wrong news out, I remember some years ago uh, having to do, this is for the New York Times. I got a story about um, the Central Park Five and in discussions with the editor and the art director and myself, we, we said that we should not portray this as a, you know, as a black on white crime. Like we made this decision. I mean, I think it was actually very forward thinking of us because, uh, you know, the obvious thing would be to do, you know, I, I hate to pick on the New York Post, but they kind of make some crass, sometimes very insensitive images that and then, then afterwards they just get embarrassed over. And in this case, I managed to develop an image that's perfectly symbolized what had occurred, but didn't blame one group of people for it because it's the act, you know, it's the sin, not the sinner. And it's, it's a hard, you know, so in that particular case, the, uh, they believe it was about one perpetrator and the boys were just kind of pulled in on it. And that the overreach was by the persecutor, the prosecutor's office. Mm-hmm. And uh, the image I came up with was the, the boys were all called, we were out wilding, if I remember the term right. correctly. And so what I did is I drew a, a lion, like a, like it's like a lion rug. And you could see feet underneath it, but you couldn't see whose feet, who was controlling the lion. You know, the lion was a symbol of the wilding and the feet was a symbol of the group. And this is, but it wasn't giving them an identity. It was just saying that the wilding was, was bad, you know, not so much each individual. And as it turns out, none of those individuals apparently bore guilt in this particular instance. So, and of course the fellow who did was, you know, persecuted for it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. And I think that's about the diligence. Like you have to step back a little bit and now no one's stepping back. So this is why you get these kind of sometimes inappropriate satires sometimes. Right. And also satire has to be challenging. It has to, to be effective. It has to kind of push buttons or it isn't satire. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. And it almost doesn't matter. I mean, it should matter, but it seems like in the coverage and how people are responding to this, they're not even really caring whether it was accurate or not. They, they just want to talk about the topic. And so they're saying, well, just the fact that this seems believable. And then they just, they want to give their opinion, insert their opinion. They're discounting the fact that this wasn't even a credible group saying this. They want to believe if, if that's their agenda, they want to believe that it's real or it could be real. And they're proceeding. I've seen people comment things like, I don't care if it was real or not. It's within the realm of possibility or it seems real. So I'm going to run with it as if it is. Right. And I think we're seeing a lot of that um, these days on everything. Like, and it's, it's, you know, people want information that validates their point of view. Right. And they'll take it however they can get it. And oh, absolutely. then run the social media and express it. And now they've got, you know, something to, to, to back it up or a vehicle to, you know, express that, that point of view. And yeah, I think with, 
with people, it's that happens. It's going to happen. But with media, there is a, a greater responsibility to make sure that what you're getting out there is actual factual, is as factual as possible. I mean, it because seems like people are going to use it to push their agendas, and they're going to cite it as a legitimate source. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so you know, it's it's like the media today. This is not the media today is not Dan Rather's media, unfortunately. You know, I think there was a little bit more integrity at that in that time, or at least, you know, from what we're looking at now, you kind of think there was a little bit more integrity in that time to where we have now. And that, that's quite dangerous. Well, it was was definitely more accountability. I mean, Dan Rather, if, if you'll remember, is sort of was the tipping point. Uh, so he's a good guy to pick for this. I mean, he eventually had, he was the one who had the problem with the George W. Bush uh, letter and it was ran up just ahead of his uh, second election. And it turned out that uh, it was discovered that the letter was written on a computer. Well, when George W. Bush was part of the you know, uh, reserve, there no computers existed, right? It didn't, the you know, typewriters didn't use ligatures. So they were able to determine that it was a modern forgery. Mm -hmm. And he actually took lumps for that. Actually, he he was he he basically got caught up in it. It is a very storied in journalism. That's that's a big story. Um, you know, prior to that, nobody questioned the media. Nobody questioned Walter Cronkite. Right. Uh, you know, nobody questioned those guys. It was called Dan Rather. Walter absolutely. Cronkite. They you just they just came on. You you accepted it as as you know gold standard type type of reportage. And you can see today we're suffering because of this, because, uh, you know, I don't want to give them any notoriety at all, but George Santos, yeah. how could they have missed that? Mm. And I think if people were informed, he, he would be just another GOP loser. But because people were uninformed and, you know, in his defense, he has he's a charming guy. But that's not a that's not he's also a, a liar. So you, you can't you know how much is too much. He, he apparently is the Joe Isuzu of politicians. And as such, <laughs> that uh, as such, I would think that it would make sense that at least on this one instance to accuse the journalism of a bit of malpractice here, because mm. I mean, that was low hanging fruit. You, this guy, you could have vetted him in a in a casual afternoon i think and this is this is the problem i think right now i think sometimes the media is so quick to jump on and i don't know why they didn't i just and and also uh, i can't remember who he who lost to him i know it was the fellow who was in, he, he was actually uh, his opponent was pretty big in, in the democrat party i can't think of his name off zimmerman. the top of my head but oh sorry who was it zimmerman zimmerman right and I'm just wondering if they just thought, no, this guy couldn't possibly, you know, can't possibly beat me. And then right. they misjudged the electorate. And then, boom, this guy, George Santos, is your congressman. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about that particular dynamic here before. It is sometimes difficult to read a situation like that. I mean, what if it was someone who is just completely on the fringe who didn't have a shot at winning. If you were the more mainstream, credible candidate or campaign, would you want to even give this opponent of yours any kind of publicity if they truly have no shot to win? Obviously that didn't turn out to be the case, 
but maybe that's what they were thinking, right? This guy doesn't even deserve the notoriety we would give him by shining a light on this. I, I think this is, a, you know, I think this is, you're talking also about the central problem of Hillary's campaign as well. They, they thought that they had, she was measuring curtains for the White House and then didn't read, you know, you just didn't read the room correctly. And right. the, and the polls were utterly skewed and, and up their guard. They didn't work as hard. And the result, of course, was. So you got to you got to keep um, you got to maintain vigilance. And that's why I think the fifth estate is so incredibly important to the American experience. Also, it's why they have constitutional protection. Right. But it's why we need. To your point, the media to be honest and do due diligence and to be accountable. You okay there? Oh, no, I'm good. Okay. We, we, had, we had a technical glitch. It's called. No, no problem. It's just a curse. So far, so far, Jay's the only person who hasn't hit the curse. That was yeah. a curse. <laughs> but it is why we need the media to be held accountable and to be held to a higher standard because people are just so distrusting of it now and we live in our own bubble. So, like we said, people seek out information that validates their pre-existing beliefs and it's really hard to penetrate that. And so we all live in our own realities and oftentimes that reality is disconnected from the people around us even. And how do we get beyond that as a culture and as a society? The pandemic added to that too. Bear in mind, everybody was quite literally in their own bubble, not just, not just ideologically. Yeah. So that I think exacerbated things as well. I wanted to do really quickly because you mentioned George Santos. This might be a good time to go over the poll results from last week because our question of the week was, should George Santos resign from Congress? And this time it was a Reddit exclusive. I'm trying to test these polls out on different platforms, but we did get quite a few responses here. 89% of respondents saying yes, he should resign. 19% saying no. So you can see that's most likely even bipartisan. And then one comment here I wanted to highlight saying he's an absolute clown. Don't know why he hasn't yet when most people will not work with him anyway. I think he likes the glory now. He's, I think he's going to ride this out for as long as he can. Oh, I suspect he will. Yeah. I mean, he has no, they, they, unless they have absolutely a distinct criminal charge that they can bring him in on. And I mean, absolute he's there um you know you can you can run court cases by and large as, as you know you can indict a ham sandwich but uh unless they actually get an, an indictment and uh, you know a court action against him he's kind of there uh, and i think people are also when they get go into it they're thinking is he worth it <laughs> you know? i mean he's I, you know what i'm saying it's, it's just that he's going to be marginalized definitely he's going to have no impact and as soon as the next election comes back and if i were mr zimmerman i would i would just sort of wait and you know reapply and run again and next time you'll win handily well there are a large number of candidates now stepping up i didn't know that yeah it's it's a circus in the making even on the republican side i think Oh. You see former state Senator Jack Martin's, you know, his name is being tossed around, but there's, there's uh, more than a handful. There's quite a few candidates stepping up for that seat. It's, it's a pretty big seat. And the unfortunate oh. thing is that, you know, while he is there and like I said, he's going to be more marginalized, no one wants to work with him. Um, that means that during that term in office, the people that he represents are going to be pretty much underrepresented. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, 
that's not a good thing. Oh, they're almost disenfranchised, Drew. Right. Sure. So. And is this a problem of blindly voting along partisan lines? I mean, I do think that most people who voted for him didn't really know what he was about. They just wanted to vote Republican. Maybe it was because of the governor's race and they voted straight down. But should this be a reminder that we need to be looking, even as voters, more carefully into the candidates that we're supporting? Oh, absolutely. I think that's that's adroit analysis. Um, you know, when, when he came up there, of course, you can't just say that the electorate you know, lost their minds. They, they voted the way they did for a, a reason and in, and in a large plurality, too. They did it because they're unhappy with leadership. That's the only time you see changes of that type. You know, when I, when I uh, first came into Dayton Towers, people were deeply unsatisfied and they didn't like being uninformed and, and being left out of the process. And that's what we told them we would bring to the table is that were we there, they would be included. And we won handily. And since then, we've kept the promise of transparency and, uh, you know, to as far as as great a length as we could to keep those promises. And I think this is what you saw this time, not necessarily in terms of transparency. Like they certainly did vote party line. I think they went down with Zeldin all the way. Right. But you you can't discount their the electorates this dislike with feeling that they don't have a say. I think that's what you saw there. And when people get that way, they make sometimes bad choices. Irrational choices, yeah. Oh, right. totally. Absolutely. So, now I was gonna say your uh yeah, your curse is acting up. Oh, you're back. Yeah, just snapped out of it. All right. So hopefully there will not be a curse at Dayton Towers now that Thomas is the board president. I know that you've been very transparent. I've been following the Facebook updates even before you became president, since you joined the board. Every time that something's going on, a board meeting, whatever it is, you let people know what's going on at Dayton. And I think the people of Dayton are very grateful for that. In fact, even at Dayton Beach Park, you have some people saying we wish we were in the situation Dayton is in where they can see everything that's happening because we're left in the dark. And so the people do appreciate that transparency that you provide. Now, what are you planning to get out of your term as president of the board? Well, I, I know exactly what I'm working towards. Uh, right now, uh, we have a lot of economic challenges. And if you've bought a, a quick, you know, 12 pack of eggs, you'll know what I mean. But it's for a co-op of our size, which is 1,752 units, you have a lot of cartons of eggs to buy. And uh, we really have fallen into a short, you know, we've come into a shortfall. The lifeblood of any co-op is of course the, the maintenance. And we're going to have to balance our budget. So, and we also have to project against future needs. So I'm working closely with our accountant and our treasurer um, who are wonderful people. And I'm also trying to advocate to make Dayton as affordable for families, you know, working families as much as I can. Uh, the last group of people who I'm very interested in are those people who are on uh, public assistance and on SCREE, which is the seniors uh, subsidy that the state provides. And I don't want them to fall through any cracks. That's, that's kind of a goal. So I guess that's, that's where I'm focused at. It sounds really pragmatic and 
pretty far away from, you know, the guy who draws pictures and, and uh, does cartoons for, for newspapers and so forth. But uh, it, it's, it's actually, it's a privilege. Uh, you know, the people put their trust in me. Uh, I, I am absolutely honored and privileged for that. But also, I know that it, it's a responsibility and I dare not blow it. You know, uh, I have, I take the responsibility seriously. And, and in the end, I want us to have a balanced budget. I think we can get through this without like, you know, too much pain, but you know, the economy is the economy. I have no control of that. And we're just going to respond to it as best we can. How have things been working out with the new management company? I know they were replaced following. Oh, oh that's, that's interesting. Personally, we, we just got a new West manager. Um, uh, Candice, uh, she's terrific. I've uh, worked with her a few times on you know, problem-solving things. Very good. Uh, Kathy, who's our main manager, she is, uh, you know, I think very focused on our needs on, on the uh, paperwork end of things. Um, as you know, Dayton Towers was 1,752 units. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, sometimes they miss things. And I try to advocate for those people who contact me and say, they missed this. I mean, I need help here. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but I think the record's pretty good. Uh, you know, we, we get, we strike a balance. Sure. And uh, that, that's, that's, but generally speaking, and, and the fellow who is basically the main manager, that would be David Barron, uh, is a genuine pleasure to work with. He is uh, respectful. Uh, he understands when I, I tell him, you know, we need this to be affordable. We need this to be as he's listens to me. So, because, you know, he's, he's just looking at it from a relatively pragmatic point of view. Oh, these are the buildings. This is the building's monthly budget. And we'll, we'll call the monthly budget $10, right? So he says, whatever else comes in, I need that $10. Of course, it's a lot more than $10, but he needs it. And, he sa- and then he'll say to me, well, it'd be nicer if I had $11. Right. Could I get $12? Right, right. You know? So it basically, he is trying to make it as easy as possible for him to keep the budget balanced for us. And, and I'm on board with that, but not at the expense of the shareholders. So it's a balance. It's a balancing act. Okay. So speaking on that balance, here's one particular situation that has arisen. I know that in the buildings now, you have signs telling residents not to buzz people in if they don't know who they are because packages are getting stolen and things like oh, that. Sure. Um, would it be worthwhile to look into installing cameras, like a ring device, let's say, so that people can actually see who's downstairs or would that be too much? Are, are pe- people to do that personally? Like no, I'm for saying for, for, for the co-op to do that in every the co-op. The co-op has a broad array of high definition cameras all in the mail rooms. We've caught people. No, but I'm talking about for the residents. So, so for, in other words, for when the residents, when someone buzzes their apartment, if they can see who's in the lobby before they Oh, buzz yeah, them. yeah. Um, it sounds great, like th- there might be a simple solution, but it's expensive right. uh, to service every p- apartment. I'm l- we're looking at solutions. Uh, I-, I think that what one solution might be that we have like what you would call a common camera that anybody can pipe into that is just the you know portcullis where you just go in and you press the button and it's like a common, like a Wi-Fi camera. Right. I think that might be the cheapest solution. Uh, I, we are in discussions about it, but... Uh, again, it's budgetarily based. So, sure. you know, when when you say, "Oh, well, can we do that?" You know, what I see is like, "Oh, hundred thousand dollar expenditure," and, and right. we have to get a new dumpster. You know what I mean? So exactly, exactly. It, it's a, it's right balancing, balance and, but yeah, right. Take care of people's fundamental needs first. But I do see but that. I, I do read. 
I do read our security port reports every month. And yeah, there's there's about maybe one or two buildings a week that have a stolen package. Right. But if 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 you look at that as an average, that's pretty low. Um, if you take a look around Rockaway, if you go to any of the Rockaway pages, you'll see this guy took the package. He porch pirated me. And, you know, you see a lot of that. Sure. Uh, and it's absolutely maddening when it happens to you. We've had people have their bikes taken here. Uh, we've had people have packages taken. Uh, you know, we've had some vandalism, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And it's frustrating. But, you know, we, we can't throw an infinite amount of money at, at any one of these problems. And, and the after a while, the results are diminishing. You don't get the result for the amount of money you spend. So right now, like I, I have this idea that it's very similar to what you've described, where it's just a, like you would have it on your phone. It would be like a cam that you see, you know, you, you can go see Hawaii, the beach at Hawaii. Right. It, it would be yeah. like that, but it would be your lobby door. And that makes sense, just, right? Because all of the apartments really have to see the same areas. Not like they all have their own door downstairs. It's the exactly. same area that they have. So we are we are definitely looking into that. So it's not something that isn't is being ignored. It's just we're trying to see who could do that. What's the you know pragmatic thing? Do we need to put a web connection in there? What's what's the deal? Like we because right. when you start saying it, then it starts adding up to hundred dollars a building times seven buildings. Sure. Plus the cameras, which need to be tamper proof times seven and they need to be environmental proof because we're in a coastal community so you're talking like 300 you know like before you know it, you're talking serious bread so right. and, and then we have other things that are coming up that people want too so it's like i said it's a balance but it's it, right. i think that that's one possibility like a, that we're looking at right now um i'm more concerned when people can't buzz people in and and people do buzz people in sometimes indiscriminately especially you know kinder hearted older you know, oh, somebody wants in, they press the button, you know, there. Uh, but generally speaking, everybody has to be a little cagier these days, I yeah. think. And, and we do send notices out. And, you know, in New York City, I was shocked at this number. In New York City, I, I, I was reading something and it, and it quoted the number as 90,000 package thefts. And I thought, wow, that's a lot for for a year, you know, 90,000, holy man, it was for a day. <laughs> so wow, I, I, I was like floored about that. That's, so that's big business then that's, that's yeah. not something small. That's, that oh, could be yeah. coordinated effort type of business. If you're talking I, I, packages, I suspect it is for sure. Yeah. Wow. But, I mean, and, and to be fair, there is only so much that, that you and the organization can do. Um, that the tenants do have to take some some initiative and, and not indiscriminately buzz people in if this is what's happening in the building. You know, there has to be, you can't you can't fix every problem. No, it's impossible. It's right. it's a, yeah, it would be a fool's errand to say. <laughs> right. Now I know you've been more eyeful, more vigilant when it comes to mismanagement at the co-op. I know going back years, oh. we hear stories about, you know, different abuses, let's say, like large contracts are supposed to be subject to competitive bidding, but maybe they would break it up into smaller contracts so they can give them to their oh, friends. Sure. Yeah. So you guys have been on top of that and really cracking down on that type of behavior. Well, the general policy has been that we always, now we, everything goes to competitive bid. Everything goes to competitive bid. And that way, actually, you get the best price. 
Right. And we've always, generally speaking, right across the board on all our expenses, we've come down, you know, in many cases, 20% off of the price it was previously had because we were insistent upon competitive bids. When you're competing for a dollar as a, you know, as a company, you want, you know, you're, you've got to come up with a lower bid. So, and they're closed. They go to our attorney, our attorney then opens them and then he submits them to the board. There's no pre-vetting or, you know, anything like that. It's, it's all completely blind. And when it comes in, we look at the relative advantages and disadvantage of each contract. I mean, I know this is crashingly boring, but it's really what the board does the most. And after looking at all of them, we usually just, we don't always pick the very cheapest one, but we come close. And if we do pick one that's a little bit more, there's usually a reason for it. Um, a case in point would be our, our uh, landscapers. We have landscapers here. And in the summer, they do a terrific job. They, they make the grounds look nice. And, and uh, by opening it to competitive bidding, uh, we got a terrific landscaper in Dragonetti for much less than the other previous landscaper. Um, let's just say 20% less, which is about the average. And this year they, you know, we put up for bid again and they came back with another price and the price was significantly more, but the price of fuel has gone up significantly more. So we looked at the prices and they won the contract. Now here's the thing, the price of their new contract is still less than the old contract. So you know what I'm saying? It's, it, it, we're, we're doing our job. It's just that we've also got other things piling up. Um, local Law 11, as you're probably aware, that's, that's sitting right at our doorstep. Um, we've also got uh, energy costs have increased 37% or, and, and perhaps more as, as we move into the, you know, the future with electric energy in the area. And gas has gone up because I think almost every place here has gas stoves. So everything's going up, but the only thing that hasn't gone up is, uh, you know, amenities and maintenance, and that's going to have to start catching up. And it, it has nothing to do with the previous board or the management, which they primed at the debt pump. There's no doubt about that, but it has to do with factors outside of the range of our, like we have a union contract that has to be honored in April. Um, you know, the union negotiated a, a relatively large increase for our workers. They have to be paid. You know, the, that contract has to be honored. So in order to pay those people, we have to raise fees. You know, that's how it works. But we're not doing it pell-mell and we're not doing it um, irresponsibly. We're doing it so the building runs and people can still live here affordably in New York. So what would be your message to the people of Dayton Towers? If you want to leave them one bit of information right now for anyone watching, what would that be? Well, you know, I would like to, you know, leave something like laugh, live, and love. But uh, uh, barring that, I, I would say that, you know, you couldn't hope for a better team of people working on your side. Every board member knows their responsibility. They're your neighbors. They, like you, feel the pain uh, when things have to go up. And, and I would uh, say to you, if you feel like something else can be done, you know, we run an election every year and you can step up and have your say you will soon find though that when the facts become apparent we are big fans of facts and truth and the transparency 
you'll see that our choices were as tight as we can get. Like we try to cut as close to the bone as we can. And that's to the benefit of everybody here, all the working families, people who are impacted by this. And, and like I said, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a relatively, I would say a, a modest, I wouldn't call it poor, but it was middle class, but we didn't have a lot of bread for sure. And I know what it's like when a family has to cut the budget. And, uh, you know, we, when we have to cut our budget, you know, it's never an always unpleasant thing, but you got to do what you got to do to make things work. So these people are, you've got, a, I think, a really great, honest board. I, I hope that all the other co-ops, um, you know, our, our board members also involved in other Michelama groups and so forth. I hope other co-ops, you know, also have a feel for that and you know look out for their people like we look out for ours i think yeah. that's important i'm glad you mentioned even the fact that people can run for the board and that you have elections every year because as you know that's not always the case on the rockaway peninsula we've really been putting pressure on hpd now that we have this court decision clearing the way for an election at dayton beach park we want to make sure that they have their election of directors as well it's been far too long several years oh. now with yeah, no absolutely and let Dayton Towers be a model. You know, you can criticize whatever you want to criticize, but the bottom line is democracy is in action at Dayton Towers. And that's the least we should be asking for. I mean, can we have an election at Dayton Beach Park? And let the shareholders say, everyone who lives in a co-op like that should have a say in what happens at their co-op, who's on the board, who runs it. That hasn't absolutely. been the case at Dayton Beach Park. So let's get that. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. And you know, it's it's the only responsible point of view you can have as as a you know in terms of leadership and in terms of the responsibility that's left to you. Uh, you you represent as a board member here. You represent about 115 people, and but it's it's more than that. You you have to bring common sense to bear. You can't let petty things get in the way of the bigger, more important things. And like I said, I'm, you know, there are times I'm just amazed, like Billy, our treasurer is amazing. And he basically works nine to five. I, I also work, but he works. And then after that, he comes in and he does all the accountancy. He's, he's a carpenter. I mean, yeah. but he, he is, I, I, I would, he should be a public accountant, honestly, he's wonderful. And he helps us get grants. He helps us work towards solutions every time. He, he's a treasure really and he feels the same responsibility i think i do and i think every board member does uh you know it's about kind of making things work as smoothly as possible um you know i didn't look for this position some people look for the position i, I definitely didn't but i know that as i said if good people don't stand up the other variety will definitely stand up and then you'll find yourself in in the kind of leadership that you really don't want to have. Uh, the other thing I, I would touch on is, I, I don't know if it, it, it's, you know, it was outside the purview of your description, but you know, there's a, I'm looking out the window at um, Surfside and uh, you know, I could turn the camera on and show it to people, but as you know, they're looking to increase their, their apartment count there by 2000. And uh, to this end, I've, I've written um, a letter, uh, basically a letter of opposition and I've and apparently uh, with any luck, the Wave and the Rockaway Times will be running that. So, you know, <laughs> thanks, Wave and Rockaway Times, yeah. if you're looking. Well, fighting the good fight, you know, you got to do. Well, yeah, you you and I both know 
2,000 additional units between 108 and 105 Street is going to be like, it's going to turn this place into, you know, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. But it, it common sense dictates it can't be good. Yeah, no, and there's no infrastructure in place to accommodate that. We're still trying to get a train to the city. I mean, we're still trying to get our second hospital back. I mean, not to mention parking and everything else, the strain on all the resources here. I mean, we're, oh, there's we're just so many tears so, Yeah, no, that needs to be able to keep up. So I know you mentioned the big important issues a few moments ago, and Jay, I think you had a big important issue to mention relating to M&M spokes candies. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's a big important issue, but I I, I do think it's a it's an interesting one. Um, so you know, it's in the news. Um, M&Ms have been having some issues the last couple of years, actually. Um, trying to be, they've been trying to be, or they say they're trying to be more inclusive, and so they've expanded their lines of spokes candies to include different types. And I think the big issue that happened, I don't know if it was last year, the year before that, when they changed the green M&M, which is the, the, the female M&M, she had go-go boots on and they changed those to sneakers. This was about a year or so ago. And there was a big uproar over that. Um, and actually on the conservative side, there was a, a campaign to make the green M&M sexy again. And they saw this as some kind of a, um, you know, politically correct movement or some kind of, you know, issue. Uh, and now we've got M&Ms have come out um, this past week and they're getting rid of the spokes candies altogether um, because they had people and uh, backlash on, I guess, from different angles. And so they're getting rid of them all together and they're gonna put uh, actress and comedian Maya Randolph for Rudolph, Maya Rudolph as the spokesperson for, for M&Ms going forward, at least for now. This is why we can't have nice things, right? And it's kind of that. Um, I do kind of feel bad for her because I, I'm pretty sure if you've got such a charged environment or atmosphere and she's standing in the forefront, um, she's just across the job she's hired to, she's going to be targeted. You know what I mean? Um, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of crazy. I, I don't get the whole, the whole point of it. Yeah, I mean, and you know, your gut instinct is to say, why doesn't M&Ms just put their foot down and say, we're not going to cave into this, but then you have to think about the public pressure that's on them, and they're obviously doing it for a reason, so it must be affecting their bottom line. I think, I don't think it was, and again, this is this is just my opinion, I don't think it was anything affecting their bottom line. We did see- Actually, the right, there's got to be a fear of that, no? Right, well, we've seen in the, in the last couple of years, a lot of companies- seeming to try to take the initiative to kind of latch onto or get up to date with whatever the, was going on in mainstream thought, right? Adding, adding more options or changing things that some people might not have even thought about, just being uh, either trying to be proactive or being reactive to, to what's going on. And that's of course gonna ruffle some feathers on from all different angles. Um, and it seems to me that this is one of those cases, like I don't, think anyone was really calling for you know the green m&ms to change shoes or extra m&ms to be added but here we are yeah i i honestly haven't been following this so terribly much i did look into it a little when i got the prompts and uh you know and then i even found that the m&ms people made a statement right 
Yeah. And it, uh, to me, it just seems like, uh, I mean, the company's job is just to sort of move candy. If I, I, I could be wrong about that, but, right. and, and of course, candy has like connections to kids, an emotional kid. What kid doesn't like candy, right? And all kids, I think from the entire spectrum of the American experience, and parents too, by the way, like M&Ms because they don't come off on your hands. If you've ever had to wash your kid's frock. Right. It's like, that's one of the big pluses for M&M's. Here, have an M&M, you know, it's chocolate, it's everywhere, but M&M's not so much. And it just seems kind of odd to me that, you know, they, they seem to make an obvious connection. Well, everybody likes it. So let's just include everybody in the scheme of characters. That's how I saw it. But, right. Um, you know, I, I felt that it was probably, I mean, I, I, I like um, the actress, you know, the comedian, uh, Rudolph, she's very funny, and I'm sure she'll be a wonderful spokesperson. But like I said, it, I don't know if it was like, like I don't know if it was the best reaction to it. I, I might have just said, hey, I went to just come up with a statement saying, "Hey, you know, here's what we're doing. You know, we know you like the candy. We're trying to keep it inclusive and put everybody in. You know, there's room for all types of candy you know, characters." Yeah. You know, I, I just think that should have been the statement and they should have walked away from it. But I agree. I agree. Which was yeah. to suggest that they were afraid of the public pressure. They thought it was going to affect their money somehow. Well, something was going to happen that was going to be detrimental to the company. Apparently, um, conservatives and Tucker Carlson in particular has been ranting about um, what's been going on with Spokes Candies. And this is kind of one of the things that people are seeing is what prompted this this change. Uh, he's been using his platform to speak out or against whatever they were doing, maybe adding the inclusive candies or, or whatnot. Um, I think sometimes we might want to step back and, and not look to, to spokes candies to to represent uh, us. I mean, you, know, you just had candies that were representative of the candies in the bag. Right. So they've right. added they've added a few others. I think there's a purple one now um, that, you know, there's not even a purple candy in the M&M's bag. Um, so it's I think it becomes a jumbled mesh when you got this culture war going on and companies are trying to navigate this, these these choppy waters. And we they're nervous. They're just nervous because what it is. They, they see this and also they know they're coming into, you know, if you've got a choice between buying some eggs and some candy, uh, you know, the candy is probably going to get the short shrift. The kids want the candy, but mom and dad, they, they want the eggs. So yeah. they know they want to try and make as a least offensive kind right. of stance. But right. I think actually in being less offensive, at least I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, it feels a little offensive. But that's just my take on it. It almost feels like they're insulting our intelligence. Well, just a little bit. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and then, you know, like you said, like they're 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 nervous. They're kind of not sure what to do. And then when you've got someone like Tucker Carlson, who has a large audience. He's on television like every night and able to put out whatever messages he's putting out. You know, they kind of feel I'm sure they kind of feel like they have to do something um, right. to combat that or to to kind of heat off some of what's going on. James in the chat says, why is M&M's giving into the right? They're always complaining. Now they're going to complain about my Rudolph. He also says this, how is Surfside supposed to increase their units? I grew up in Surfside. 
are they supposed to build more buildings? The answer to that is yes, they're going to build more buildings. Yep. And and more than double their, you know, they're they're on a footprint that's roughly the same size as you know, Dayton Towers, you know, West, but they're going to have more buildings on their footprint than our West and East campuses combined. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, and, you know, the, the way I see it, it's just a uh, corporate money grab. It's the only thing. I, well, it's not for the betterment of the community. It's not for the betterment of their tenants. They don't have a terrific record as land you know, lords. They just don't. They've been sued just twice this year by the city. Um, you know, and that, of course, that's that's just tort. But right. I mean, it's not exactly a, an endorsement. Let's put it that way. It's also going to potentially wreck people's views, right? If you start building basically in parking lots facing people's windows. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no there's no upshot to this, except if there is an upshot for you know, Alma Realty, where they were getting a lot of money. But, sure. you know, as I, I pointed out, sneak preview of the letter that I said, I mean, cease and desist doing this and look after the people that are your charges. Like, look after your tenants. Deal with your violations first, then you build, if you're going to build. And if you're going to build, build responsibly. Right. Yeah, James is going to take away parking spots. Yeah, I mean, that might be the least of it, but certainly. Yeah, I think that's, the, in, in any cases, um, what you said there, I think is probably uh, a good guiding light is, is to carry your tenant uh, first and before you make those other decisions. And then the decisions mm -hmm. made on top of that, after that will be you know more in the right direction for anything, I think. Yeah, work with the community also. If you're going to build, do so in conjunction with the cooperation of the community board and the local officials and start looking at these considerations that the community has in terms of, all right, so what are we doing about schools being overcrowded or parking or, you know, if you're going to build, what kind of partner are you going to be to the community and are you going to actually improve it? Are you even interested in making this better community or are you doing it at the community's expense? Right. I think it becomes pretty self-evident when you start looking at it on those terms. And, you know, for, I don't know if any are following in, uh, you know, Dayton Beach Park, but I wish them the best and I hope you have elections this year. Yes. And I hope you have a, a responsive board take take charge and look to your needs. I think that's what you really want and need. Absolutely. So the last topic we wanted to get into was the Florida issue. What's going on in Florida with the AP course that the governor and state recently banned from the curriculum? It was a Black or African American Studies course, right? And if you look at what's being said. All kinds of crazy things. I mean, now he's saying that this violates state law by including critical race theory. He's saying that includes the queer theory somehow. He's using those words, queer theory. And he says that um, it's, it's a violation of the law to be teaching kids this, that he says that he believes in teaching American history. But the way that they're doing this is, in his view, pushing a political agenda that, that the state should not be pushing, including abolishing prisons, which apparently is a part of this on some level. So should right. be restricting the curriculum this way. And part of this, and part of the plan for this AP course, this AP African-American studies course that um, was being proposed, there were a number of things that were included in there. One of it was, what was that? 
uh, had to do with, um, uh, I guess, Black queer studies. And he had issue with that um, because I think he labeled that somewhat indoctrination. Um, he also said that these things, uh, he had an issue with the intersectionality that was being introduced or, or discussed in here. Um, he had issue with, with several things. Now, I, I wanna be very clear in my assessment of this, because um, this is this is not the first time for, for DeSantis, right? Um, the, the law prior banning um, critical race theory, even though that's not even what was being taught or what was even being proposed anywhere. Um, this, is, this is blatant and clear racism. And DeSantis has a pattern of this um, and his supporters are following and they're complicit in this. If the, the Department of Education doesn't, or a Board of Education um, doesn't fight back against this or the College Board doesn't fight back against this, it's complicit. I would call the same thing for the Democratic Party, for the, the GOP as well, and, and any of the supporters. We're looking at a governor that is blatantly blocking the study of American history, but just history or knowledge in general, because he's already blocked critical race theory. Now this is the, the AP. He did the don't say gay bill. Um, this is very dangerous. And this is a problem. This should be top of mind for any of the politicians in Florida and should be very much on the radar nationally so those, something like this doesn't spread and continue to go forward. And this is an AP course, right? So my understanding right. is you have a choice as to whether to take right. that. Not every student is going to get it, right? So if they don't want to study that. Right. And so he, he even cited that, um, I guess, one of the books or one of the things that was recommended uh, in the reading list was something by um, civil rights activist Angela Davis, and he called her, you know, communist and Marxist. But whether or not that's what she believes, when has it been in the country where you couldn't study and learn about these things, right? We've had college courses about but that, that talked about communism and Marxism and any of these types of things because it was about teaching them about knowledge. And to restrict that is a very, very dangerous thing. And it's a pattern for, for DeSantis. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I teach at a college, at St. John's College at St. John's University. And uh, one of my first things I kind of go right into is, do you, do you know why a university is called a university? And the usually, they don't really know. I mean, they know it's a seat of learning, but they don't really know why it's called a university. And so I, I explained to them, it's because it comes from a root word, universalis, from New Latin. It means of all things. And from my perspective, uh, critical race theory falls into that catch. It's of all things. If you wish to study that, why can't you study it? Like that's, that's just, it's one of the forms of study. And if you wish to study it, you should be allowed to study it. And the fact that these were AP classes, not generalized curriculum, seems to fit that because you're prepping for college. <laughs> so it seems to me that 
uh, you know, DeSantis is kind of over isolating it. And he is certainly, I think he's probably more so playing to his base. Uh, you know, in other words, he's, he's ginning up support. He's looking for a national run, I think. And he's trying to become a firebrand of some sort. And this is an easy, this is low hanging fruit for him, uh, you know, because, you know, he can easily turn opinion on it. Right. And that's, that's, I think, why he's doing it. I was thinking the same thing. In fact, that was the same phrase that came to my head, playing to his base. But I just wonder how that plays. If, you, if we're looking at the politics of this, forget for a second the morality of it, but just looking at the politics, how would that play to a general election electorate in the U.S.? It, I think loses, it loses him in New York. But well, it, certainly, it certainly New York. It, but even Utah. just a moderate voter in the middle of the country, I mean, that's outside the base that he's playing to. I think it's a loser politically, aside from being morally wrong. It could be. I mean, it absolutely could be. I, I, I never really tried to suppose what other people think, but uh, you know, they they have their own research inside of campaigns and inside of political. Yeah, I guess you would call them work groups, uh, and they basically, or think tanks, if you want. And they kind of try to gauge the mood of the electorate. Uh, remember, this is a country that elected, you know, Donald J. Trump, you know, <laughs> the country did that. So Right, except for the fact that every time he ran, he lost by millions of votes. So he still wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm saying? It, it, that's what they're thinking. They're, they're thinking that way. Yeah. So it's a very similar thought process, in my opinion. Um, you know, in, in terms of, like the generalized curriculum, uh, the proponents of this uh, have said it's not in the general curriculum. And th they're right about that. It is not in the general curriculum. So I don't see why, why everybody's up in arms over it, but he's made it an issue. And for better or for worse, it's going to hang around him. So it's going to be one of the either, in his opinion, the pluses, but in most other people's opinion, definitely I know, it'll be in the negatives. Yeah, maybe it'll work in a Republican primary. Maybe he's trying to out-Trump Trump on that kind of thing. I just think that that's all going to come back to bite him in a general election. And, and you know, in a, in a, in a Trump era, a post-Trump presidency era, I, I don't see that as a guarantee to be something that's going to be a negative against him. You know, um, like, you know, like, um, like Tom said, we elected Trump. The, the country elected Trump. And and remember, what was who was the um who was the, the candidate years back? Um all he did was like get excited and he goes, Yeah. And like that was the end of his presidency. Our Dean. Our Dean. Our Dean, right? That was yeah. the end of his campaign. That, that's all he did was get a little excited. And so <laughs> from there to to Trump taking office with all that he said and Everyone that's come out of the woodwork that have felt emboldened by him, I don't see this being a guarantee that this is going to be a negative for DeSantis. I think it's going to be a positive for a lot of people because he's in some of the things that he said about this, he's dividing groups to try to to pull different parts. Right. So it's he's talking about this is an AP African-American studies course, but he's pulling out saying, oh, why is queer theory uh, part of this? So what you're gonna do is you're gonna get people who are against queer studies and, and, and jump on that. He's talking about, um, you know, why is the, they're talking about movements for black lives included in that. So you're gonna get opponents 
of those types of things. So you can get a few people from each of these different groups to make up uh, a supportive group. But you're also going to drive up turnout amongst the black community, the gay you community, hope. and you people hope. with empathy, right? <laughs> which is a coalition comprising most of the country. Well, you'd hope, you know, um, just on the queer the queer theory part, you know, it's people aren't aren't a monolith. There are a lot of people in the black community, in the the Latino community, and all communities that are against you know, the, the movement of LGBT. And so if you pull that and say, well, this is why we're not studying it because you've concluded studies about queers, queer folks, then, you know, you've got people that are gonna be like, yeah, that's not part of black history. That's not my history. I'm, I'm with him on that. And now he's got supporters where he might not have had them. Yeah, I think that worked, you know, against a number of candidates, that, that exact premise worked against a number of candidates in the last election cycle. And it was incorrectly framed by their opponents, but people kind of bought it. And I agree, there is there is a a threat there of the sort, and it you know you dare not look away from it. Right. Uh, and and it's it's cross disciplinary too. Like you know, I Fred Hayes, who is an African American creator at the Wave, and he does the Thor, the hero of Rockaway. Uh, great guy, by the way. You should read his his strip. Um, he, uh, you know, I have students who just admire his work and they've followed it for years. And I hadn't known Fred's work till I started working with him. I mean, it's, it's a big industry, but I, I started because the students kept coming to me and saying, well, I'm doing this or I'm going to this. I want to see this person at, at Comic-Con. And so I, I went and I found that the most interesting panels are like the, uh, there's one called the uh, it's called Afropunk. Mm. It is so good. And it, it goes over all of the, you know, African-American cultural sort of touchstones. And it, it makes sense. Like Superman was created to, for, by two, generally speaking, kind of nebbishy guys who were being picked on. So they made Superman to support them. Uh, the African-American creators are creating similar mythologies. And it's the same kind of catharsis that they're looking for. They're looking for empowerment. Mm. And the thing is, if you don't go and look for it, if you don't open your mind to it, you won't see it. And then when you're in a classroom and you have half the class are African-American students and you're not and you don't know this, you're not serving them well. So it's cross-disciplinary. Even in the arts, you have to keep your eyes open to it. You have to watch for it. You have to be vigilant. And like I said, it, it's it's funny. Uh, I had one student. This is the best reaction I think I've ever had. Uh, I I don't know if you've ever read Preacher. It made it, it became a TV series, but it was a great comic book. And it, and the character is is black, and he gains basically godlike power. And I was just talking about. I said this reminded me of Preacher, and the student who had obviously read every Preacher ever written. <laughs> just he, he got up on his seat and he, he just almost was in tears you read preacher you know like that was important to him of all the things that you could have said you know and those are the kinds of things that be having you know your eyes open and looking what other people are doing and trying to understand those points of view that's important yeah really important and those who don't point. do it you, you need to oppose that yeah that's sure. a great point to make 
because we just spoke about how people are in their bubbles now and they only know their own reality. They're only looking for information that validates their own agenda, but that's not the way forward. And if we're trying to do better as a society, then we need to have more knowledge. And even if you think, for example, this course is going to teach things that you disagree with or are objectionable to, even if that's your position, it's still better to learn it because how are you going to have a conversation? Maybe number one, you'll understand that, hey, my ideas were wrong or number two at least you have more information about what's out there and if you have your own position that's contrary to that you can debate it and advance the dialogue in a productive way right oh it's it's it's, it's what makes us more fully human right and then you know and and typically we would protect this type of discourse or this type of ideology in the halls of learning right that's kind of you know, the, the image has always been, especially when you get into college, it's like, this is where that's supposed to be protected, you know, through these types of learning. So it, it, it's, it's very dangerous. It can set a da very dangerous precedent uh, to see if this, especially if this happens in other parts of the country and DeSantis is, is dangerous and he's more competent than Trump in the ways of politic and you know, all of those things. So he could be even more of a... An I don't know if you're setting a high bar there, but... <laughs> well, I think, I mean, as far as knowing how politics works, I would I would think that DeSantis is a little bit more competent than, than Trump is. Trump was in there to, to be seen as a spectacle. It was, you know, his full thing. This has been DeSantis's career. So he's got more experience in this realm than, than Trump did. So... Yeah, it's a good point. Well, we want to wrap up here in a minute. So, Jay, why don't you take a crack at the poll of the week? What was the poll that we were going with? I, the me I think we were going to do one on the media, oh, but you could maybe do yeah. one on the subject as well. Yeah, let's, let's go on. We were talking about the media. Okay. Um, wow, what, what would we go there? Okay, well, let's let's try the poll for this week. Um, um, should the media be held to a higher standard when reporting the new, I don't know, that's not a very good We also polling. had a question that was kind of similar to that, right? Should they be Yeah, we did that already before. Yeah. We did that already before. It's a tough one to ask because everyone's going to say yes, but the, the question always becomes how, like, how does that look? Right. How do you make them more accountable? What do you do as opposed to should they be? It's hard to frame that in a yes, no question. It is. It is. And, and like I said, everyone's going to or we would think that they should. It doesn't matter what your 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 background is or what your way of thinking is. You would want to get you would think you would want to get the most uh, factual and truthful information delivered to you instead of being lied to by media, pundits, whoever it is. So that's it. I, I, I my my take is that i believe that the newsrooms are somewhat decimated they've been pared down and and because of that they're relying on secondary sources i mean they're looking for headlines from twitter you know think think about that headlines from twitter that's really something so yeah. i don't know i would say should should the corporations that own the media take their responsibility as stewards of our knowledge more seriously Sounds like a good poll to me. Yeah. Let's we can just run it like that. I like it. I, I like, like it. it. Thomas, come okay. with the assist. And yeah. we also like to give our guests the last word here. We call it the bottom line. 
It came actually from Adam Clayton Powell when he was a guest on our show many weeks ago. He said the bottom line is, and he was about to say something that sounded very important, and his phone cut off. And so since then, we've been giving our guests the bottom line, and it's whatever it is. It doesn't have to be anything too deep. Whatever we talked about, or even something maybe that we didn't talk about, whatever you want to leave our listeners and our viewers with, oh, Thomas oh, Kerr, okay. what is okay. the bottom line? Well, the bottom line, look to each other, be kind, be understanding, be tolerant, and, and at least a little forgiving. That's my bottom line. I like that. I think I it's like excellent. That. That's excellent. I think uh, we would all do well to, to heed those words and, and that way of uh, thinking and interacting. It's right. been a pleasure, gentlemen. Yes, thank you, Thomas. And I think that all goes along with our general theme this year, really, of let's do better, right? Better. Let's strive to do better as a people. And I think that will go a long way towards achieving that. Jay, before we sign off, where can people find us? Yes, they can find us on YouTube at Nuance Show, where we have the recordings of these discussions. Um, if you are a podcast listener, all of the the uh, audio is going to be pushed out to wherever podcasts are. If you subscribe, they'll get automatically pushed to your device. We are up on Instagram as well. You can come through, follow, leave comments. So if you want to partake in any of the discussions, if you got any comments on anything that we've talked about, um, you can leave it there, Instagram and YouTube. Sounds good. And of course, we are live on Facebook as well every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Thank you for all who tuned in and joined us and participated in the discussion. We appreciate you. As always, this has been Nuance. Thank you to Thomas. Thank you, Jay. Thank you to everyone. We've got work to do, guys. We'll catch you next time. Good night, all.